Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 you know if god's going to use someone they must be broken of self they have to be pride is a strange way of working in both instances both in our self-pity and in our self-assurance and Because the center of both ideas is self. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join senior pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Last we saw in Exodus chapter 2, Moses ran away from Egypt after murdering an Egyptian. He ran away to the land of the Midianites. There he met the daughters of Jethro and started working as a shepherd. God had chosen Moses to help the Israelites be set free from their enslavement in Egypt. But could this Moses, who was a shepherd in a faraway land, still be useful for that task? We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. We've bridged the gap from Genesis to Exodus as we are seeing now that God had moved from showing Israel where they came from to bringing them up to their present. And and so Exodus focuses on God's promise to this new nation, that now it's been promises that have been made to the forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and you name it, but now it's coming to them, this people, 400 years later, who are enslaved in Egypt, that God has a promise for them as well. And through this process, we see that things are, are very bad. They've been enslaved, and Moses is the one that God is, he's born, protected through miraculous circumstances, he's raised up, and it seems like he's the guy, and then Moses, of course, what? He does all the right things. He rejects being Pharaoh's daughter's son. He removes himself from the royal court. He goes and he bears the reproach of his own people. And then when the moment comes to reveal himself, uh, Moses looks left and looks right, but doesn't look up. He jumps the gun. He murders the Egyptian. And when Pharaoh finds out, he puts out the execution order and Moses has to flee. Now, Moses, of course, was already a believer when he made the decision to follow the Lord many years ago. It was by faith, the Bible says, that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It was by faith that he chose to leave the royal court, earning the ire of his peers. It was by faith that he chose God's reward over all the riches that Egypt offered him. But when he left Egypt and he landed in Midian, and he started to make a life there, in the 40 years since he left Egypt, we're going to find out here in chapter 3, it becomes very clear that his relationship with God isn't quite what it used to be. And I want to ask you tonight, do you think God is far from you or can't use you because you're no longer in the prime position for his use? Or, or maybe because you blew it while you were in that prime position? Well, as we see God call Moses to return to Egypt and to do the task that God sets for him, may we learn that God can use all of us in the same way. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, 
the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why? the bush is not burnt. It's interesting. If you'll notice, if you go through this progression, God's going to do five things that he does with uh, Moses here to get his attention again and to work in his life. First, he starts off with curiosity. He starts, what's that? From there, he's going to move to personal communication. Moses, Moses. We'll get to that later. Then God gives a revelation of his holiness. And then he follows that with a revelation of his love. And then he concludes with his call on Moses' life. And oftentimes, that's what God does with us, too. You were curious at first. Whatever was going on, you, you know, you had things. Maybe life wasn't going so well, or maybe it was. I don't know. But you were curious, and you, you were interested. You had questions, and, and you came to a church, or you talked to a Christian friend, or you read a Bible, or whatever it was. And, and then God began to speak to you personally. He revealed to you then His holiness, and you saw the fact that you were a sinner who needed a Savior. Then he revealed his love to you, that he sent a Savior. He died on the cross for your sins. And then he began to work in your life through the plan that he had for you when he created you. Here Moses is drawn by curiosity. But before we get to that, it mentions his new occupation. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. You know, 40 years go by in that one sentence, Moses kept the flock of God, a flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. 40 years. And when you tack on the 20 years of waiting in Egypt, when you thought you were God's gift to his people, and then plus 40 years of realizing how foolish that thought was, the Moses that we're about to meet is a drastically different one than the man who killed the Egyptian. Now, you might have noticed Jethro being his father-in-law's name in the previous chapter. His name was Ruel. What's, what's going on there? Well, some have said that Jethro was his actual name, his, you know, the birth name given to him, and that Ruel was a title since he was the priest. Or they've said it's the other way around, that Ruel was his real name and Jethro was his title as priest. That makes sense to me. I'd believe that. Maybe, had, maybe it's like Rhodes in Florida. has three or four names. Well, it mentions here that Moses, as he's working, 40 years later, he's doing this every day, hanging out with sheep all day, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Oreb. Now, Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. We don't know exactly where this is located. Some people say it's in Saudi Arabia. Some people say it's in the Sinai Peninsula. But wherever it was, it was located to the northwest of the Midianites with a desert in between. Now, when the lowlands dried up, the, it was common for the Bedouins to move to the elevated ground around this mountainous region of Sinai. Water abounds there, so it's an ideal place to bring flocks. Moses had probably been this way hundreds of times over the last 40 years. It was a common trip for him. And so, so it shouldn't surprise us that when he sees a bush that's burning and it's not being consumed, that it gets his attention. Now it explains what's going on in verse 2. God tells us, Moses tells us what the Lord was doing. He says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So it was a real bush, or, you know, a regular bush, a natural bush, but God appeared unto him as a, as a flame of fire that was in the middle of that bush. Now, you say, well, how do you know it's God? It says it was the angel of the Lord. Well, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, in contrast to an angel of the Lord, usually refers to God, or as we will say, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. You say, what are you talking about there? Jesus, prior to his incarnation, when he took a body upon himself, he had a glorified form. The Bible says that God the Father is a spirit, right? Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the Bible says no man has seen him at any time, okay? Now, the Holy Spirit, of course, again, he's a spirit. There's no physical form to him. The Bible says you can feel the effects of what he's doing, but you don't see him. 
On the other hand, Jesus, we know, has a glorified form because we see it in the book of Revelation. Remember John sees him? Now, John walked with Jesus all the time, hung out with him. He was never, ever frightened or freaked out or anything like that. But we see him in Revelation and he sees Jesus in his full glory. Eyes of flame of fire, sword coming out of his mouth, legs of brass. And what does he do? He says he hit the deck. You know, he, he just, you know, almost passed out from being in that presence and that the holiness and the, the awe of who God was. Jesus had to come and touch him and strengthen him so he could stand in his presence. This was someone who was very familiar with Jesus, and yet that was his experience when he saw him in his full glory, his full physical glory. So anytime we see in the Old Testament where God physically manifests himself, that has to be Jesus. It can be no other member of the Godhead because no man has seen the Father at any time except the Son and because he's a spirit, and the Holy Spirit, of course, doesn't take physical form either, okay? You say, but it says he's an angel. So you're saying Jesus is an angel? No. The word angel here just means messenger. In Genesis 32, 6, it's used of Jacob's messengers that he sent to Esau to find out if Esau was favorable toward him now after all these years. So like I said, in this case, it's a messenger of the Lord, but we know it's the Lord himself because in verse 4, it says, and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. So we know that it is Jesus because it uses the word Lord there, which identifies him as Jehovah. Okay, So there's Jesus in a pre-incarnate form, appears as a flame of fire in the middle of the bush, and Moses looked, it says, and behold, which means check this out, there's a bush over there burning with fire, but it's not being consumed. Now, this bush is the brittle thorn bush, bushes uh, that are common to the desert. During very hot times, it was not uncommon to just see them spark up and then just burn out. They were very dry, very brittle. And if it was so hot, they would sometimes just spark up and then just foof, like uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. You know, just foof, it's just gone. So a bush on fire would catch Moses' attention. It's not like he sees a whole lot of other exciting things out there with sheep every day. But the fact that the fire continued to burn in one of these bushes that would normally just poof out, that drew his curiosity. And so Moses said, I will now turn aside and I'm going to see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. This is a guy who's one of the most educated men in all the world. That's how boring being a shepherd was. <laughs> I want to check this great sight out, this bush. Well, verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here am I. I love it that the Lord didn't say, hey, you, yeah, you, the one that murdered the Egyptian and set my plan back 40 years. He doesn't say any of those things. He was here to meet with Moses. This was personal. And he calls him by name. And do you realize that God works personally in your life too? What does it say that the sheep and their shepherd are? They know their shepherd's voice. You know, he calls them by name. He leads them out and he leads them in. And they follow him because they know his voice. And the Lord here is speaking to Moses he says, Moses, Moses, personal way. Moses responds, um, not necessarily a personal way. He says, here am I. Um, this is the proper response in the Middle Eastern culture of an inferior to a superior. Hey, you know, Johnny, what are you doing in there? You know, you come and go, here I am. The idea is, what do you need? I'm here, I'm here to do whatever you need. And so Moses he gives this response of a servant. It was the response of Abraham, of Jacob, of Samuel, and Isaiah when God met them personally. Like I said, it's the equivalent of saying your servant is ready to do as you ask the Lord. Now, there's a part of me that wonders if God responds to this in verse 5 the way he does. He calls attention to his holiness. He says, Moses, take the sandals off the feet. Don't come any closer because the ground you stand on is holy ground. There's a part of me that if, wonders that if God... God uh, responds by calling attention to his holiness because in reality, 
Moses' heart didn't match his words. It's almost like Moses says, whatever you need, Lord. But in reality, he has already limited how God could use him. Whatever God had intended for him, he knew it had to be small. It had to be uh, insignificant. Something that can't be much. Maybe it might be, you know, be nicer to the sheep. Okay, God, that's, that, I can do that. Because he said, here I am, Lord, whatever you need. But Moses, throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4, is going to object. Moses is going to start off by saying, Lord, I'm a nobody. And God's going to be, it's okay, I'm going to go with you. And he's going to go, but I don't even know you anymore. And the Lord's going to say, it's okay, I'll tell you, show you who I am. Then he says, oh, but Lord, I, I hang out with these sheep all the time. I, I got a speech impediment. I talk bad. <laughs> that joke was bad. So says, fine, take your brother Aaron. And fi- finally, when Moses has exhausted all his excuses, he goes, I don't want to go. <laughs> I love that one. You know, I've been giving you, I've been throwing up all this smoke screen. The truth is, I just don't want to do it. You know, I don't want to go. He's very reluctant. Me? That's not for me, God. But he starts off, I'm here, Lord, whatever you need. And there's a part of me that wonders if the Lord says, you know what, Moses? You said those words way too easily. I think sometimes we do the same. We sing songs here, take my life and let it be, you know, all for you and for your glory. Do you really mean that? Because what might he do? I don't mean that to scare you. I mean, in a good way, like what good thing might want to do in your life? Oftentimes, it is, oh, take my life. You know, here it is. I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he's like, all right, I, I want you to go. And I want you to go to H4O on Saturday. And you're like, What? No way. No way. I can't even share the gospel with myself, let alone an unbeliever. We sing the words, but inside we really think God could never use me to do anything important. Or maybe even worse, maybe Moses had never really dealt with his failure. His here I am is unsurrendered lip service. And we can also make this mistake. We can sing songs of surrender, but have no intention of changing the things in our lives that displease God. Whatever the reason that God does it, God interjects a revelation of his holiness into this conversation. It's it's as if God says, Moses, he tells him, he says in verse 5, don't draw not uh, not nigh hither, which means don't come a step closer. You have been approaching this and, and you need to stop. Don't come a step closer. You know, there's a part of that that's like God is saying, we are not going to be able to go any further until you realize who I am and what I want to do in your life. And you know, I think God does the same thing with us. If our lives become stagnant or mired in defeat and mediocrity, God interrupts our life with a crisis that forces us to take a clear look at who he is again. And maybe you're there right now tonight. If so, it's, listen, it's not because God's mad at you. It's because God wants to show you something very special that will change your life. Verse 5, he says, don't come closer. Now, that's such a weird thing to hear from God. Because why would God want to keep anyone at a distance? He paid the highest price in sending his son, so nothing would keep us from him, right? Why would he want to keep anyone at a distance? Well, you might say, well, this is before that. Jesus hasn't died yet. I mean, even in the tabernacle, God had said, you know, you know stay away because I'm holy. Yes, you're right. God can't be approached in that sense. But you know what I find fascinating? He never said these words to Abraham. He never said them to Jacob when he appeared to them. And last I checked, you can't exactly wrestle someone from a distance. He never made them take their shoes off. 
You say, what's the big deal? What's well, a really big deal? In Middle Eastern culture, taking the shoes off was something that you did when you went into a pagan temple. And the reason you did it was it was a sign, uh, it was a confession of personal defilement and conscious unworthiness. He says, Moses, you're taking this way too lightly here. If you ever want to do an interesting study, compare the call of Moses with the call of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 and this, these two chapters here. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he uttered these words in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He had taken his sandals off already. He'd already acknowledged the fact that I am not worthy to be here. This is God Almighty that I'm in his presence. Isaiah had had his eyes on the great king Uzziah. And now that king was dead. That's how that chapter starts off. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I had my eyes on this man who I thought was going to fix everything in our nation. He was such a great king. And when he died, I saw the Lord. And when I looked at him, I thought, I have missed the boat. I've completely missed what I'm supposed to be doing. I've had my eyes in the wrong place. And he wondered, you know, what are we going to do when the king died? But once the Lord showed him how magnificent he was, he realized he was wrong and he confessed it. I've been talking Uzziah, Uzziah, Uzziah. And what I should be saying is the Lord. You know, Moses lived in confidence that he was the guy for the first 40 years, right? I'm the man. That pride led to failure, and now he spent the last 40 years living with it. Pride is a strange way of working in both instances, both in our self-pity and in our self-assurance, because the center of both ideas is self. See, unlike Isaiah, Moses makes no such acknowledgement, no such confession. And so God says, I think, stop right there. We're not going any further until we deal with this. And so he says to him, put this off the shoes from your feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. This is the first time that God, the word holy is used in the Bible. And God uses this opportunity to define it. The idea of that reverence, the sense of submission to God, an awareness of how God is unique from us. Moreover, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses had surely, when his time in the Egyptian royalty, seen the highest of Egyptian officials remove their sandals before going into their pagan temples as a sign of their own unworthiness. But this was not some pagan idol. This is not some pagan temple. This was the God of his forefathers, the one true God, Jehovah. If anyone deserved reverence, it was him. And God's words have the desired effect because look how Moses responds now. And Moses what? He hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. He concealed his face. I don't know if he pulled his robe over his face so he wouldn't be able to see the bush anymore. But the reality that he had just been gawking like some tourist upon Almighty God finally struck him. And now we see a terror similar to Isaiah's. I imagine it was like Peter in our scripture reading who critiqued Jesus, criticized him for telling him how to fish. Hey, why don't you go out and throw your nets out on the other side? Go out and, get, and catch some fish. Peter's thinking, bro, you're the preacher, I fish. All right? I catch fish. I've been out there all day. Me and my whole team, we do this every day. We catch fish. We ain't caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, you're the rabbi. I'll do whatever you say. And then what happens? The, the boat's sinking, <laughs> you know? His nets break, and so they call the, the, his partners to come over and help. And then they got some. I, mean, I almost wonder if Jesus is just sitting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, 
I could do this all day. <laughs> you know? I can keep bringing the fish. Just tell me when to stop. And Peter, in the midst of that, Luke 5, 8, Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He finally realized, I'm not just talking to some preacher. He realized he was talking to someone much more powerful than that. And at that moment, all his years of knowing how to fish meant zip. It shattered the importance of self. You know, I'm often told by an unbeliever that God is unjust to send men to hell for sinning. But I'm pretty sure if they stood before him at that very moment, their opinion would change. The awareness of his holiness and his righteousness, his perfection, and our just nasty attitude, let alone the sin that we commit. And that God lets mankind have another day every day blows me away. I don't ever question the idea of hell or eternal torment. It makes sense to me. I know my heart. It's yucky. And the more I get to know it, the yuckier it is. It's his love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness and the list of his attributes go on and on that keeps us still breathing. It's that same love and mercy that spoke to Peter as he made that confession, just go away. You shouldn't even be around me. That spoke to Peter and said, fear not. I'm not here to destroy you, Peter. I'm here because I want you to fish for men from now on. I've got work for you to do. Or it's the same heart that said to Isaiah, he said, woe unto me. And the angel took a seraphim, took the coal off the altar and he touched his lips and he said, it's okay. It's okay. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. I'm not here to destroy you, Isaiah. I'm here to send you as a prophet to my people. That's how God's going to approach this with Moses. But Moses had to humble himself first. You know, if God's going to use someone, they must be broken of self. They have to be. This breaking isn't so you feel like a loser. You know, sometimes we think that's humility. That's, that's, that's humbleness. You know, I'm no good. I don't do anything good. No, that's not humility. That's just self-pity, which again is pride reversed. Because itself is at the center of it. This breaking isn't so you feel like a loser. It's so you finally stop trusting yourself so that you can be, God can fill you with his unstoppable power. You know, let me ask you, if God's been breaking you lately, how are you responding to that process? Jesus said this. He, I mean, no way around it. He said, listen, you got two choices. You can fall on me and be broken, or I can fall on you and you can be crushed. It's one way or the other. It's not a, you know, someone said, I heard them teaching on this passage. They said, it's not an elective it's a mandatory course, okay? All of us have to take it as God seeks to break us of ourselves. Well, just like with Isaiah and Peter, the Lord follows a revelation of his holiness with a revelation of his love. And so in verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I am very closely acquainted with their troubles. The word their sorrows refers to both the physical pain they were enduring and the emotional anguish of just seeing no end to it. He says to him, I am come down now to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large one, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all the otherites. He says, this is why I'm here today, Moses. I'm not here to destroy you. I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to confirm that promise to my people. And you know, my people, they may have forgotten those promises during their 400-year stay in Egypt, but I haven't. I keep my promises. And here's the kicker, Moses. My plans to keep those promises, they involve you. Verse 9. Now, therefore, behold, this is where you come in, Moses. The cry of the children of Israel has come up unto me. I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. You know it too. So come now, therefore. Let's get moving is what that means. And I will send you unto Pharaoh that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
Case closed. End of story. Let's go. That's really where the conversation is supposed to end. Let's go. Because that's what it means. That come now means let's go. Let's go. Come on. Let's get on the move. Now, (laughs) there's a part of me that would love to have been watching Moses' face when God spoke, verses 9 and 10. Like just, you know, kind of sitting there with the popcorn. Here comes the best part. And come now. Let's go. And you see Moses' face just go, me, God? You're about 40 years late. I got nothing now. Verse 11. And Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. He says, God, you've got the wrong guy. I had a dear friend of mine. He's a pastor up in, uh, not a Calvary pastor, but he's a, a pastor up in Michigan now. Very gifted guy, amazing musician. He was the worship leader at Church in the Sun for years. We, we grew up uh, as young uh, teenage Christians together. He was just very talented, very charismatic personality too. I remember when God called me to be a pastor. And I, I was fasting and praying, seeking the Lord and I remember it, it, just, it came down to the same thing. I remember telling the Lord, I said, you got the wrong number. He, he, my buddy, he's the guy, you know, I mean, he, he's the one. He's got, he's got the smile, you know, he's got everything. He's got the charisma. He's got the, you know, everybody loves him. And you know, I'm quiet, I'm shy, I'm introverted. I don't know anything. I, you know, all my whiningness. And I remember the Lord said to me, he spoke to me. I was, I was 17 years old, just before I turned 18. I was 17 years old. The Lord spoke to me the entire first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Never memorized it, but just boom, it was in my head. And of course, the part of that is God chooses the weak to confound the strong, right? You know, the foolish to confound the wise and base or the simple to confound the noble. And the Lord asked me that question. He said, can you be foolish for me? I thought, I'm pretty good at that. Can you be weak for me? I got that down. Can you be base for me? I ran out of excuses. And then he said, go. And he does the same thing. He'll do the same thing with Moses here, but that's Moses' thought. Who am I? That's a good question. Let's take a look at who you are, Moses. You're the guy who at one time was convinced you were the guy. <laughs> like if God had come to you and said, Moses, it's time to go, you'd be like, where do I go? Lord, I got this. You step and get, follow me. He, at one time, he thought he was the guy. He was convinced he was the guy. You're the guy who had all the position and influence, the obvious choice to liberate your people, remember? And Moses might easily respond to that comment by saying, that's who I was not who I am. And you know, there's truth to that, but there's also a falseness to that. He no longer had the position and influence that he used to have. But one thing was true. For different reasons than he thought 40 years ago, it was still true. He was the man that God picked to liberate Israel. That had never changed. God doesn't call anyone into any form of ministry or leadership opportunity because of their own personal talents or skills. God calls the humble and the broken, the things that are looked down upon, These are what God uses for His glory. Should you have questions about anything or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.